Mighty Lord and Everlasting Father, we come before your word this morning with hearts desirous to know your will for our lives. We pray, O Lord, as we come this week to think collectively as a nation about thanksgiving, that for we who are your people, it is more than simply a day off from work. It is more than simply a holiday in which all kinds of people might celebrate in Yet for us, it is something that stirs us to think about giving thanks to you as we ought every day in our life. We pray, O God, that you would help us to understand your word, understand the Spirit's intention, and that we would take it to heart. We pray, O Lord, that you would illuminate the scriptures to us, that you would bless the preaching, that you would bless the hearing, and that we might magnify you in these things. We so pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we turn to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. The first letter, and we're looking at chapter 5. And here, Paul is actually making some concluding remarks. And the way that this is set up in our Bibles looks simply like parts of a paragraph, yet the way that he wrote it originally, the Spirit's intention in it, it's set up inside of three pieces or a triplet of series here. And we're looking at the middle of the three. There's a first one, there's a second, there's a third. But in reading verses 16 to 18 which is really just about one sentence. Let's read together what he says. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The outstanding feature of this particular subsection of this triple series of short remarks is for the inner Christian. For us to look inwardly in response to what Paul so desires for us outwardly in the church. The first section here starts in verse 14 and consists of four pastoral injunctions, talking about certain things concerning the church in that respect. The second section gives three directions for manifesting the will of God in one's spiritual life. And the third section is five exhortations relating to the prophetic ministry, the word itself going out. We're concerned with this middle part. And, and there are other kinds of these short series all through the scriptures. Um, Paul writes it in Romans 12, 9 to 16. Peter writes of it in 1 Peter 2, 17. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 1, 16 and 17. And uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10 and verse 8. There are all these, these little sections that pop out at you and you're to consider in a particular way. These were possibly instructions given in this form 
to serve as something that's easily memorizable. Something that you can easily memorize. I mean, after reading it one time, it seems to be pretty straightforward. If you want to memorize a scripture this week, memorize 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Very simple. It's almost like Paul is setting up the main points of a church service with an emphasis being laid on glad adoration. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in everything. With consequent ideas of this prayer and this thanksgiving and the liberty of the spirit and the avoidance of anything that might seem unseemly. Let's look at what he says. Verse 16. Very short. Rejoice always. Now the interesting part of this as well as what he says about thanksgiving is that it's all inclusive at all times in all things. Rejoice always. Following the regulations of verses 12 to 15, it's impossible, apart from personal communion with God, to do anything that Paul is telling the people that they should do in the church, in those other verses, without being able to rejoice always. Interaction with others in the church, including the pastor, on notes of negativity, is not helpful for the church and not edifying, so Paul turns to the believers in her life that they are to rejoice always. He writes in other places in the same way. Romans 14 and verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, not these outward temporary things, rather righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So an exhortation, be joyful always or rejoice always, he voices a theme that's characteristic, really, of much of the New Testament. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, and they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. What does he say? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So even in the midst of the worst things that could be happening, uh, mutilation and torture on behalf of witnessing for Christ, Jesus says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. In Acts chapter 5, it says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So even at that, the hands of being beaten, the apostles went away rejoicing. And Paul says in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Christian joy comes to light under the most adverse circumstances. That's what the New Testament presses the Christian believer to think through. That even in the midst of the worst possible things that could happen to us, we are to rejoice in the Lord always. Paul states the paradox succinctly in 2 Corinthians 6.10, where it says, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The Thessalonian Christians had already suffered with joy, and Paul had himself, they, it says that in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and Paul himself the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 3.9. But the challenge for all Christians is for this joyful outlook to become constant, always. 
And it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Rejoice always. From a human perspective, they had every reason not to be joyful. Persecution from outsiders and friction among themselves. Yet, in Christ, they are to be more and more joyful. So he says, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now, it's interesting that he says, rejoice always, and then he says, pray. Immediately and intimately related to constant joy is what we'll call incessant prayer. The only way to cultivate a joyful attitude in times of trial is to rely on God through prayer. You have to pray in order to be joyful. Uninterrupted communication with God keeps temporal and spiritual values in balance. If the temporary is overshadowing the spiritual, one won't be joyful. So one must balance that out by incessant prayer. And the word continually, utilized also in other passages in Romans 1.9, 1 Thessalonians 1.2, and in other places, doesn't mean some sort of non-stop praying. Paul is not a nitwit. He doesn't think that you're just going to keep going and going and going and going and not stop like the Energizer Bunny. It's not like that at all. What he means is that it implies constantly reoccurring prayer, growing out of a settled attitude of dependence on God. Whether you utter words with your mouth or not, lifting the heart to God while one is occupied with miscellaneous duties is the vital thing he's talking about. Sometimes we used to call these breath prayers. You're in the middle of something and you just, you're dependent on God. God, help me with this. But the idea is that you have this constant attitude of going to God and looking to Him for strength. Verbalized prayer will be spontaneous and will punctuate our daily schedule all through the day. Lord, help me. Jesus, give me strength. Give me more of your spirit. According to Jesus, people, quote, ought always to pray and never lose heart. Luke 18.1. Romans 12.12 says, Rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation, continually, how? Steadfastly in prayer, or literally preserving in prayer, which probably conveys the sense of the present passage that we're looking at, preserving in prayer. Do it all the time. Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. And then in verse 18, he says, in everything, give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. A final part of this triplet for personal development is give thanks in all circumstances, in everything. For the Christian, no combination of happenings can be termed bad or evil. For a Christian, because God's constant providence in his life and God's constant superintendent of his life Nothing bad ever happens. Not really. Nothing can necessarily and overall be termed evil or bad. There are bad things that happen. People die. People are hurt. People get a disease. People are sick. Those are bad things. But overall, providentially, there is nothing bad or evil ultimately. 
And we need to recognize that seeming aggravations are but a temporary part of a larger plan for our spiritual well-being. God is looking out for us. And so thanksgiving is proper in everything. And that's literally what it says. Everything. Thanksgiving is closely associated with prayer, as in the first part of Thessalonians in 1-2. Or also we could compare Philippians 4-6. In everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He keeps that constant outlook of keeping those things together. Thankfulness is gratefulness, is gratitude, is appreciation, is positive recognition for God's providence. Out of this, out of this particular perspective, we can always discern a cause for thanks. In fact, a failure to discern a cause for thanks is a symptom of unbelief. Ingratitude is one of the features of pagan depravity, as in Romans 1.21. The children of God are expected to abound in thanksgiving, but Romans 1.21, the pagans, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, ingratitude is a demonstration of pagan depravity of unbelief. And so Paul says in everything, instead of being unbelieving or unthankful, we're to be thankful in everything. Why? Because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This justifies all three of these brief commands. Rejoice always. Pray always. And give thanks always. Why? Because God's will for you is that. That's his will. Rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks is not all of God's will. Certainly God has other things that he wants us to do as well. There's more. But they are vital parts of God's will and commanded in that way. In Christ Jesus, because we're in union with him, there's a significant qualification of God's will because only here can the inner motives be touched. Only by the union that we have in Christ can we rejoice always. Can we pray without ceasing? Can we be thankful in everything? In union with Christ, together with an accompanied inward transformation, we can comply with God's standards and his motives for our life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Being new in Christ allows us and gives us the ability of the outward obedience in all things. Rejoicing in all things. Being thankful in all things. And that has to be said in the context of our union with Christ. Unless we're changed by God, we would not have the ability to do these things. If the source in the Christian, is contaminated if something's wrong in the heart. Fulfillment of God's will in outward matters will be impossible. It won't ever happen. God's will in Christ Jesus, we could paraphrase that as God's will for you as members of the Christian fellowship. 
Paul's point, coupling it with his statements of the church just previous to the verses that we're looking at. It's in the fellowship, too, that they can carry out God's will effectively. Rejoicing with one another, not just alone, but can be effective to one another. They can pray for one another. Pray alone, but pray for the church as well. Incessantly. And giving thanks with one another for all that Christ has done in our union with him. Why? Again, because this is God's will. True victories in life, all of the true victories in life that we have, are won by Christians who are joyful, prayerful, and thankful. Now, this particular text seems to be really very simple, somewhat straightforward. So, we're going to look at drawing from these short phrases two opposing doctrines from the text. The first is that Christian thankfulness in all circumstances is consistent with a true union with Jesus Christ. If a Christian has been blood-bought, saved, regenerated, converted, all of those initial requirements for being translated into the kingdom of heaven, he'll be thankful. As a matter of fact, Paul is so sure of that, that he writes that we're to give thanks in everything. Thankfulness has an object. Thankfulness has an object. God and Christ. 1 Timothy 1.12 And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm 145.2 Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. It's giving thanks. Union with Christ enables men to be content with God's work because it is God who works in them. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says under the section Good Works in 16.3, it says their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. And Jesus echoes that in John 15.5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So our object for thankfulness is the union that we have in Christ before God. The regenerated and redeemed man is thankful to Christ because he has been awakened to his miserable estate and thankful that Christ has saved him. All things for him come delivered on Christ's will and God's providence. And so all things that come to him, he is thankful for. Thankfulness follows contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6 Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Thankfulness is actually a branch of godliness. Hebrews 13.15 Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifices, praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Even that which comes off of our mouth, the way that we speak should be of giving thanks. If a man is not content... He cannot be thankful. Even blessing food that you hate to eat could be construed as going against some of the commands of God. There was uh, one of my teachers who told us a little story about being thankful about the food that he 
would bless or not bless. He would sit down with his wife. It was him and his wife. And he sat on one end of the table, and she sat right across from him, not very far away. She had all the food ready for him for supper. And he'd look, and he'd see the bowl of broccoli, and he detested broccoli. So he would take the bowl of broccoli off the table, and he would put it on the chair, and then he would pray, Oh, Lord, we thank you for this food. Amen. And his wife would then reach out, grab the bowl, lift it up, and say, And this too. For her, she was thankful. But for him, he was not thankful for the broccoli. But if one hates something, they can't really be thankful for it. And that it, though, is part of God's overall providence for their lives. In other words, to be thankful, one has to mean it. They can't simply perform or go through the motions of what thankfulness might be. They actually have to come from their heart. He really wasn't thankful for the broccoli. So he didn't, he didn't tell God he was thankful for it. That's somewhat a silly illustration, but at the same time, it holds a little bit of the truth in it. Because a contented man is thankful for everything. He's thankful for his life. He's thankful for his dwelling, for his vocation, for his family, for the ministry of the gospel, for Jesus Christ in his life. That's Paul's point, because God's will is that union that we have in Christ Jesus. All of these things should be true. He who is thankful is thankful for God's choice of him. That God has plucked him out of the world and placed him in his providence, in his positive providence, in all the things that go on in his life. That's why Paul says in verse 18, that word, everything. Not in some things. It is, in fact, everything. There's nothing that the Christian can escape being thankful for. The Bible is filled with examples of people who are thankful. It's enforced by the example of Christ, who himself gave thanks to God. And he gave thanks to God for the distinguishing blessings of his grace bestowed upon his people according to his sovereign will and pleasure. When he said, as you remember in Matthew eleven twenty-five and 26, I thank thee, O Father. He thanked God that the salvation that he was bringing was delivered to babes. And even hid from the wise and prudent. But he thanked God. David, when he was delivered from his enemies, was thankful 2 Samuel 22 and verse 50. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He was delivered from his enemies. Ezra and the people of God in worship in Ezra 3.11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. The psalmist was thankful for the word of God. In Psalm 119, in verse 62, At midnight I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. Wakes them up in the middle of the night. Jonah, if we could, if we could say it this way, during cataclysmic, unforeseen circumstances, he was thankful. Jonah said in chapter 2, in verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. During cataclysmic, unforeseen circumstances, Jonah was in the belly of the great fish when he said that. 
I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. Now that, you really have to stretch your theological mind to wrap your arms around that one. Imagine being in the belly of the fish. <laughs> How much worse could that possibly be? You're being digested and he's giving thanks. The apostle, just before eating a meal, Acts 27 and verse 35, and when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when they had broken it, they began to eat. He was thankful for his food. And the quintessential person in the scriptures, besides the Lord Jesus, who was trusting and thankful, irregardless of God's providence, is no doubt Job. Job 13 and 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. You recall that Job's health was removed from him. His family was killed. His possessions were removed. And he said, even though God does all of these things, yet still, I will trust him. The thankful attitude. So we want to remember that the union that we have with Christ should show forth in everything rejoicing, prayer, and most assuredly being thankful. But here's the second opposing doctrine. Ingratitude is inconsistent with Christian obedience and reflects a secret atheism and rebellion against God. A discontented man is not thankful for anything and is being disobedient before God. If a discontented man says he is thankful for certain things, he's a liar. For only in accepting all things, everything in God's providence and in God's will, can a man be thankful. He's either thankful or he is not thankful. Paul does not give the Christian man a choice to be thankful in some things and not other things, but in everything. And lack of joy always manifests itself in those discontent and those remaining unthankful. Men can't fabricate their own thankfulness without accepting God's will. They can't go their own way and create their own means to happiness. Men must exclude a course of sinning, for God condemns the one who blesses himself in a wicked way. He has to hold on to what God's will is, not what he wants to fabricate in and of himself. Listen to what Deuteronomy 29.19 says. God says, and so it might not happen, when he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. I want to do my own thing. I want to create my own means to happiness. But God says it doesn't work that way. It's impossible to be content and thankful and harbor something other than God's will in our heart. It's impossible to be discontent and unthankful and be blessed of God. To be thankless is to deny the Christian has in Christ the basis of the verses this morning. Joy, prayer, thankfulness, they all fall under being united to Jesus. Even the children's catechism. The children's catechism in question five. Why should you glorify God? Why? Really, the answer to that is because I should be thankful for all things in God. Listen to how it's answered. Because he made me and takes care of me. They trust. They're, this is thinking is foreign to those 
who are unthankful. And ingratitude reflects that kind of secret atheism. And secret atheism is the attempt at rejecting the reality of God's control over the Christian. They don't like the, that idea or those ideas of God's providence and his control over them. They'd rather change that or create a different providence. Atheists are men who hate God and suppress the truth about God and instead attempt to believe that there is no God. If a Christian man hates God's particular providence in his life and attempts to suppress the providential reality by denial, he's nothing but a secret atheist. For a Christian man to live before God without constant prayer for spiritual success is a likely means to cherish and strengthen secret atheism in his own heart and very unlikely to work holiness in the lives of others, much less himself. And see, these commands in verses 16 to 18 are set right in the middle of what we're supposed to be doing, not only in our own life, but in the church. It is unbelief that causes the Christian to say, I don't trust God's judgments. And secret atheism always manifests itself in boldness, confidence, and security in sinning or blatant unthankfulness. And it's usually manifested in affliction. It's usually manifested in a horrible providence. And affliction naturally gives birth to anger and resentment. Remember the woman who said to Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and verse 18. So she said to Elijah, What have I had to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? Her attitude was one of anger and affliction, which brought out the worst in her. She didn't trust God. Instead, she lashed out. Not only secretly, but before the preacher, God's prophet. The Bible, though, not only commands the Christian to be thankful for everything, but especially in the diversity of affliction. God appoints such times for our consideration. He gives us these to consider things. To consider things about our providence, his providence in us. To consider things about our spiritual contentment. To consider things for others, even around us. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 7.14 says. Very, very slick verse. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, be angry. No, 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 it doesn't say that. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. He wants us to consider the things that happen. He doesn't tell us to be angry. He doesn't tell us to shut God's providence. Instead, he tells us to learn from his providence. None but a godly man can truly be a thankful man. Now, I would regularly take these two particular doctrines and apply them to us in the fashion that I always do. But this time I'm not going to do that, especially in light of being thankful, I don't think this is very hard for us to grasp overall. And at the same time, I think I'm going to use which would kind of heighten a practical awareness of what Thanksgiving really is all about, even what it was initially about for our country as a founded Christian country, so to speak, 
when the Calvinist pilgrims came, I want to read to you three accounts, three separate accounts, separated, all of them by a good many decades, some of them 150 years or so. But I want to give you three accounts of Thanksgiving, and I want you to hear and listen to what these people were thankful for, why they were thankful, and in the midst of what they were thankful. The celebration we now popularly regard as the first Thanksgiving was the Calvinist Pilgrim's three-day feast celebrated in early November of 1621. Upon landing in America, the Pilgrims conducted a prayer service then quickly turned to building shelters. Starvation and sickness during the ensuing New England winter killed almost half their population. But through prayer and hard work, with the assistance of their Indian friends, the pilgrims reaped a rich harvest in the summer of 1621. Most of what we know about Pilgrim Thanksgiving of 1621 comes from original counts of the young colony's leaders. Governors William Bradford and Master Edward Winslow in their own hand. And this is what they say. They began now to gather in ye small harvests they had, and to fit up their houses and dwellings against winter, being well covered in health and strength, and had all things in good plenty. For some were thus employed in affairs abroad, others were exercised in fishing about cod and bass and other fish of which they took good store, of which every family had their portion. All ye sooner was there no want, and now began to come in store of fowl as winter approached, of which this place did abound when they came first, but afterward decreased by degree. And besides water fowl, there were great store of wild turkeys, of which they took many, besides venison and other things. Besides, they had about a peck of meal a week to a person, or now since harvest, Indian corn to proportion which made many afterwards write so largely of their plenty here to their friends in England, which were not feigned, but true reports. So in the midst of half of their population dying, in the midst of starvation and sickness ensuing the very few that came off the boat, they were still quite thankful for the little food in which Bradford says they were abounding in, and the little food that they had. That was the very first Thanksgiving in which they gave thanks for the little food even after such adverse circumstances. Here's another. A national Thanksgiving. This is a quote. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have, by their joint committee, requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author 
of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and favorable interpositions of his providence in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted, for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, and the means which we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge, and in general for all the great and various favors which he has been pleased to confer upon us, and also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplication to the great Lord and ruler of nations, and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions, to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed, to protect and guide all sovereign nations, especially such as have shown kindness to us, and to bless them with good governments, peace and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue, and the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. That's the end of the quote. Given under my hand at the city of New York, the third day of October, 1789, President George Washington. That was given after the revolution, in the midst of adversity. And some, almost a hundred years later, another proclamation of thanksgiving was given. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with blessings of fruitful years and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come. Others have been added which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence. That's a great line. Let me read that one again. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed, that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence. In the midst of a civil war of unequal magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and to provoke their aggression, peace has been preserved with all nations. Order has been maintained. The laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere, except in the theater of military conflict. While that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and the navies of the Union, needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. 
The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements, and the mines as well of iron and coal as precious metals have yielded even more abundantly than before. The population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege, and the battlefield, and the country. Rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor is permitted to accept continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human council has devised nor hath any mortal hand worked out these things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and all those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly do him for such singular deliverances and blessings they also do with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows and orphans and mourners or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it, as soon as may be consistent with his divine purposes, to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. In testimony whereof I have hereto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed. Abraham Lincoln, October 3rd, 1863, passed by an act of Congress. So, in the midst of the Civil War and the atrocities that were going on during that time, still there was a proclamation to give thanks to the source from which all these things come. Never a hint in any three of these over a period of 200 years and having the same ideas that they ever squabble or lament or become ungrateful or unthankful. Instead, all of these proclamations were given with thanksgiving, with a desire to recognize, follow, and submit under God's providence in everything. As Thanksgiving approaches for us, might we not only nationally think about the things that God has done for us as a nation and where we live, but also personally for all that God has given us to be thankful for in his providence. For the scripture tells us, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God, in Christ Jesus, for you. Let's pray. Mighty God, everlasting Father, you are the source from which all things come. All providences are given to us by your great hand. And we look to you, Almighty God, that we would give you thanks for everything. Help us in our heart. Help us in our minds. Help us in our daily distresses, that we might not seem, O oh God, to you in the secret recesses of our heart 
or outwardly before others to be ungrateful, to be unthankful for anything, but instead, through incessant prayer and in rejoicing always, we would give you thanks and everything. Help us to recognize the abundant flow of mercy that you've given us, even chosen us in Christ Jesus, that we, according to the union that we have with him, would be grateful for all of his will delivered unto us through his blessing. He is our high priest. He is our God. He is the sovereign one of the universe. We look to him. We ask him to forgive us for our unthankfulness, to forgive us for our ingratitude, and we ask that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit, knowing that all good works are done wholly from the Spirit of Christ, to help us to be thankful, not only this Thursday, this coming Thursday, but every day, every moment, in everything. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.